everyone, and welcome back to the 16mm Film Crew. I'm Cindy. And I'm Dale. You can watch us on YouTube. You can like and comment on our YouTube videos and subscribe to our YouTube channel. You can support us on Anchor. You can listen to us everywhere podcasts are found at 16mm Film Crew Podcast. Leave us a rate and review. And visit us on our website at www.16millimeterfilmcrew.com. So this week we watched the version Suicides directed by Sofia Coppola. So here is your synopsis. In an ordinary suburban house on a lovely tree-lined street in the middle of 1970s America lived the five beautiful, dreamy Lisbon sisters whose doomed fates indelibly marked the neighborhood's boys who, to this day, continue to obsess over them. A story of love and repression, fantasy and terror, sex and death, memory and longing, it is at its a mystery story, a heart-rendering investigation into the impenetrable, life-altering secrets of American adolescence. This movie stars James Woods, Kathleen Turner, Kirsten Dunst, A.J. Cook, and Josh Hardnett. So, Dale, question first, have you watched this before? And if you did, what did you think on a rewatch? Or if this is your first time watching, what did you think about it? This was my first time watching a movie. Like when this movie came out, I think it was like 2000. So I wasn't young enough to, you know, to watch that. And, you know, the people I was was around, they weren't going to say, hey, let's go watch Virgin Suicide, that kind of thing. So, um, but yeah, it's, uh, I don't know. It's, it's really heart-wrenching in a way. I know it's, it's a fictionalized tale, but it's a lot of, a lot of experience young people have um and it's also telling and it's very pointy in the fact that um yes even though this represents you know 1970s americana in that era i always i'm always interested and mystified by the fact that every generation kind of deals with some kind of strife like this of a disconnect with your parents or family in general but we repeatedly once we become adults and have kids are unable to somehow relate you know i'm mm. always mystified for that but you like you could say i know it's like i've been through the same things but when you know we bring it up to our parents they somehow cannot make the connection and sympathize or empathize i've always found that child parent dynamic that aspect of it really weird but yeah um back to the movie though but i do feel like um and this is sophia coppola of mm-hmm. course, Dr. Fresh for Coppola. But I do think she has a natural gift. It's like something you see like nowadays with um Greta. Mm-hmm. And her stories of a lady bird. Women who are this. But uh Sophia has a way of breeding so much life and empathizing and relating to a lot of these stories with young women you know with this with bling ring um she has really cemented her career of being able to tell and still be able to relate to the stories of um not just adolescent young girls but adolescents in in general yeah i am a Am I a huge fan? I'm a fan. I am a fan of Sofia Coppola's. I think that she's a really interesting filmmaker because she does take women and uh, women seriously and as subject matter. And she um, 
definitely gives them a platform and allows women to be as feminine and complicated as they want to be. And I think that she was a rarity back in the day because no one else was really doing that. So for someone like her, who obviously comes from, you know, a cinematic lineage that's very powerful, like not only her dad, but that whole entire Coppola family really has (laughs) dominated Hollywood over the years. Um, I like the direction that she took that like, okay, I'm going to be a filmmaker, but I'm going to make films about women. And I think that that, and also like not just women, but like girlhood and taking that seriously. I thought that was really cool. And I, the first film I saw of her was Marie Antoinette. It's mm-hmm. still my favorite film that she's done. I haven't seen somewhere. So I need to go see that, but um, love that film down. That film is one of my favorite films ever it's so good um been a huge Kirsten Dunst fan forever and obviously Kirsten Dunst is like her muse like she's in a lot of her movies so I was excited to see this because everyone was like talking about this film I mean just like in terms of people who are into movies (laughs) they have talked about this cited this film said how impacted they were by it, especially women. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go see it and I'm going to see what the hype is about. And even though I think it's a really interesting story, I think it's interesting. I think that visually it's really well told as well. Um, And I like the subtle performances in it. I like what it has to say. I thought that was really interesting. Like just in terms of all the things I listed in the summary earlier, like that it really goes deep into those themes but after it was done, I was like, I don't know how to feel. Like, I don't, I kind of felt empty, but not like empty in a good way where you're just like so invested that you feel drained, but empty, like, I don't know. I know what I was supposed to get out of this, but why am I not feeling it? I guess that was, maybe I didn't understand it initially. I was like, okay, so what are we saying here? And then I watched some analysis about it and I was like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I definitely saw what people are talking about, but the way other people were like, how much this, like this film impacted them so much. I was like, I don't feel that impacted by it. And I don't know why. I don't know why. I mean, for, for, yeah. for me, it's not like impactful for me. It's like very like relatable. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it's very little for me on both sides as you know, I can understand the girl's plight because you know, um, you know, really, really not to go depth in in religion, but when your parents are really strict with your religion, it kind of does very restrictive. And if you're listening to this podcast and you are an Adventist, you are an Adventist or an Adventist youth, you can kind of relate to the rigidity and structure of I can't do this, I can't do that, what you know, that kind of thing. Um, I just see it doubly because you know that's my experience with you know being being a West Indian family living in an American you know um being in America you know my parents really couldn't understand you know because they weren't adolescents growing up in the state so their their idea of you know back then in their time you know even my grandma feels tables would would have said it like movie theaters are evil and they're places of sin and like that kind of thing um. And I do understand. I I also relate to the boys and their sense of it's not curiosity. It's like really weird prepubescent fa- or pubescent fascination with these girls because they're just coming out of nowhere. Where 
blue eye blonde hair just strolling into the house you only see them at school they don't interact with anybody so it becomes like this really almost my perception of the voice is almost this really weird voyeuristic personality in a way that's borderline kind of creepy because after the sister dies they pay a plumber to get you know her journal her diary and they read her diary and they kind of piece together who they are and then you know once they all the family moves they go through the garbage can and find their journals just to read about them and they're they're fantasizing on going trips with them you know that kind of thing so it's really almost incel like and it was there were also the boys who really didn't talk to girls either so they would always go up to the more how should i say the more interesting guys for information and the, most of those interesting guys would like tell tall tales so it's, it's really a unique view of adolescents dealing with controlling parents and that over like the boys are kind of over sexualizing these young girls as well so it's a good you know parallel and that was literally why the mother was so controlling like the father was basically absentee let's be honest but the mother was so controlling like to the point where they went out on the prom and the moment the door closed you see her kind of just freaking out like and that's the thing once once when you restrict your kids to the degree that the mother was it just forces them even more that way i remember in college like my parents are christian and stuff like that but they're not like strict strict whereas when we were at at, at that school i saw people like doing the most i'm like but why I, I, I didn't get it so when you're when you're trapped in those kind of environments and you get the chance to you know release the release is usually just as just worse so yeah Mm. yeah i guess i let well first of all i have to say that i'm glad that a woman directed this just because i feel like yeah the book is written by a man but i feel like if a man had directed it it would have been way more sexualized than if because it was in a woman's hands i feel like you could I feel like you could tell the story of the creepiness of these boys um, in a way that mm. didn't kind of go over the top. Like the, you can have kind of the scenes play out the way they did and you would understand the message. Like it wouldn't go too far into like maybe seeing one of the girls undressed or something like that, which I feel like sometimes men will take it to that level. And it's like, well, yeah. you could have made the point in another way. And I feel like because of the female gaze, that Sophia has it it was a lot more toned down but in a way that you still got what they were saying because it was still as creepy just to see like those boys like eating popcorn and looking through a telescope at these girls and like on one hand you're like okay is it sympathetic like are they trying like are they trying to look for signs so they can actually help them or are they just being creepos and it seems like it's both so (laughs) that's not great but um I think one of the reasons why I probably wasn't as like deeply moved by it is like it is one of the whitest movies that I've seen in a long time. Um, It is very, very white. And Sofia Coppola specifically has had a lot of criticism about this very thing. Um, Not having diversity in her movies. That's a major critique of her work. And I agree with that. But I think that also maybe it's because I've 
I watched it now. If I feel, I feel like if I watched yeah. it in the early two thousands when it when it came out, I would have had a different reaction to it because now it's like I've seen like we I've seen sad white girl stories so many times before. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So it's like it's not like I'm seeing something new or different. Um, it's interesting seeing it through the boys and the community's perspective. I think that's a really interesting look at it. I think that's cool. But um, in terms of like that specific story like i've seen that so many times and also because i feel like directors and storytellers know how to tell stories about young people better now i've seen that be done so i'm not like oh this is the first time i've seen a young person being taken seriously like no like i've i've seen that quite a few times um before and also because i think the way sophia directs films or the stories that she chooses to adapt you don't really get to know these main characters like they're always kind of held at arm's length you're always seeing it from mm-hmm. someone else's perspective or the character is very restrained so you don't actually really get to know them that well versus someone like Greta who you have who has like a character like Ladybird, who you're spending so much time with her and her family so you know exactly what's going on um and that feels more personable and that feel, and for me, that felt more relatable. So like, even though I am not a white woman living in California, going to a Catholic school, everything that Lady Bird went through, like I completely identified with that. So yeah. it's not that I couldn't identify with these girls. I com- I understand like the religious and the controlling and all of that. Like, I totally feel <laughs> that. I totally feel it. But, um, because again, you're not seeing it really from their perspective. You're seeing it from the boys' perspective. It does. Yeah. You're not getting like that intimate kind of connection. And I kind of wanted that. Like, I wish we got this story told through their eyes. I just, I don't know. I don't know if the impact would have been as great because like some things that you can only tell through a distance, like, or through a third party, like you're not, maybe you're too close to see certain things. I don't know. But maybe that's one of the issues I was grappling with. Yeah, I think I do think because the story is the main character of the stories. The main character of the story is not the the girls themselves. It's it's the, it's the boys. Mm-hmm. But they're recounting their experiences with the girls a through either interviews, the few times they met them, the few, the times they've observed them, or through rumors they've heard. So, and then mm-hmm. that's the thing. Like, from the, like, if you're if you're not aware of that, and your perception of this movie is, oh, the girls are the main characters, but we don't know anything about them. That's the reason why. But then again, we also don't know much about the boys either. So it's kind right. of like mm-hmm. it, it makes sense and it works out in a weird, a weird way. Um, but yeah, like what you said, like I think, like you said before, like because we've seen these sad white girl stories like so often in nineties, um. And being very little as far as depth. And I think that's the thing, like, like we, you said before, like, Sophia was like one of the few women directors who was actually trying to make these properties. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, excuse me. Um, I don't have my water this time. Wow. Um, but yeah, she was the first woman who was trying to make these properties. So, but now you have like mentioned Greta. She's took what Sophia started and is built upon it and expanded upon it. And actually, her. Her stories have a lot more substance and more depth and are, you know, not just relatable just from, you know, 
the female idol as a perspective. Like you said before, there are things of Lady Bird. I could, even as a guy, I can relate to, you know, her experience and stuff like that. So. Yeah. And I don't want to, because I know that that's another critique of Sophia's work is that it doesn't have substance. I don't think that's true. Yeah. I very much think that like her work has a lot of depth in it. I just think that it's, it's at a distance. Like you can't, it's almost the same kind of critique that people make of Chris Nolan's movies where it's like visually it's a spectacle, but the characters are a little bit, sometimes they're good. Sometimes they're a little bit of a miss. You don't really know anything about them. And it's like, not even about them. It's about like everything else that's going on. Um, And I feel like she sort of falls into that where it's like, you're only going to know the character so much. Like you're not actually going to, it's not an intimate portrayal of these people. It's very much like you'll be seeing it second or third hand and you'll just have to take all of it as it comes. And I don't know, because I haven't watched all of her films. Like I haven't seen Lost in Translation or somewhere. I've seen like On the Rocks and Marie Antoinette and this obviously. Um, But so I don't know if her, if, if that changes as with in different works, like if in the beguiled, like she does a different thing, I'm not sure. But from what I've seen, it just feels like she doesn't, she's not going to let, it, it's more of like a story driven narrative more than a character driven one. So it's like, that is just, that's just how she makes movies. And I think that that's okay. Like you don't, every single film doesn't need to be a ladybird. Like that's okay. Yeah. Um, but I do think that it does have substance. Like, I feel like this is a really interesting film. Like, do I wish that there were more people of color? Absolutely. But I think how she is understanding it and from what I've understood from other people who have analyzed this or her films, were like, well, this was a time in America where white people were leaving the cities, um, which is very true. 1970s, um, as black people moved into the cities, white people left and went to the suburbs. So the town that they are depicting is very white, very upper class, very secluded. Like it's not, you're not going to find people of color there really. So I guess in that way, it does make sense, but you know, I, it's weird. It's hard to comment on things that were made from that were made like 20 or so years ago. Cause it's like, I guess the standards of like what people were expecting from these films were different. Like we weren't mm-hmm. looking for diversity necessarily, or maybe we were, but we were, we weren't looking to Sofia Coppola, I guess, for that or to provide that. And also just the idea that she like writes what she knows, like she is a white woman with a lot of money. So like, that's probably <laughs> the subject matter that she's going to cover. And I feel like for white filmmakers, which is basically most filmmakers, um, <laughs> or high profile ones. Um, the idea of diversity and inclusion is a, is an idea that they have to work towards. It's not an automatic given, like they're not gonna know to just do that. And I think for people of color who are making films, it's like an innate thing. Like you, you can't help but think about it. Like it's automatic. Like, yes, of course, yeah. you know, this is gonna be either a black movie or it's gonna have mostly black characters or any other character of color. Um, so I think for white filmmakers, it's a thing that they have to keep working towards, even Greta. So like, 
I don't want to give her too much flack because like, I guess, I mean, I'm not white, so I don't know what that's like to like not automatically know to do something like that or to tell stories that include black people or people of color. But I will say that if you're still making movies and there aren't black people in it, then that's an issue because now we're, we're not in 1999 anymore. We're in 2023. So Priscilla, I, the, the new movie that's coming out this year, I hope there's some black folks in there because if there's not, then I can't, I can't defend I mean, you anymore. Like, it's a movie about Elvis's, well, it's Elvis adjacent movie and he is notorious for stealing from black artists. So yeah. I mm-hmm. doubt there's going to, well, you might see a couple of black people and he's copying their dance moves and becomes famous. That's what I wish Baz Luhrmann had actually covered his movie, but I didn't. Um, yeah, he really. Yeah, the thing, <laughs> the thing with like and like with this genre like the genre of sad white girl movies is um also like you hit the you hit the note on the head is predominantly just um white girls and i think with this more so with greta you were able to be more critical of greta because it's not like <clears throat> um dang what was the movie oh my tar tar covers this real well mm-hmm. in the beginning um, how do you reconcile um, pieces of art or fiction that were created past in the past? Do we gauge it with on that level of what it was, or do we start critiquing it and breaking it down on a, for, with modern understanding? Mm. Like how, oh, this man is a womanizer, he is X, Y, and Z. Do we, does it lessen the historical impact or relevancy of it once we start taking all these modern ways of thinking into a account or does it diminish it like with this movie i do think um <laughs> sophia does have the issue she could have made a more concerted effort like you say this movie is set in the 1970s in the suburbs so you kind of give it a pass but um i do think it's still one of those seminal pieces of adolescent um, fiction um and it also one of those things where creatives, no matter black, white, brown, you only relate to objects or content based on your personal experience. Mm-hmm. So, and, and like you, you, you said it perfectly, is because people of color usually have to navigate a really diverse world. You know, we have to interact with white people, we have to interact with other black people, we have to interact with um, Spanish people, we have to interact with Asian people. So our world interactions are always so diverse where when it comes to making art and making projects, like you'll see a lot of black black creatives like like gay people will be featuring in their projects. Oh, it's a very wide swath because that's our experiences. But a bit, but it, when it goes to the the white spectrum of directors and creatives, since their life experience is always so insular and insulated in the those white havens, it's kind of harder for them to, you know, create paint a diverse world when that's not something they've ever really um had to navigate or experience you know what i'm saying yeah so totally yeah. and that explains a lot <laughs> it's just yeah, yeah it does it's it, for me it's i'm not gonna like pass judgment on this movie in particular yeah. but i know that there that that has been a major critique of her work specifically and i and I'm also kind of a little bit, it, it doesn't really make sense totally because she lives in New York and New York is the most diverse yeah. city, one of the most diverse cities in this country. So it's not like you're not interacting with other people who are outside of your race. Like you are. Yeah. 
And I think, and I think she's trying like the on the rocks movie with, with Rashida Jones. Like she, it seems like she's There's trying to get there. Yeah. yeah. But I feel like, again, with white filmmakers, it's always like you have to, it, it's a constant movement of like trying to incorporate more people because yeah, if your background is a certain type of way, you're probably not going to be able to tell stories with other people who are not familiar to you in that way. And, um, and listen, we all, it's not, we're all born where we're born with the, with the certain set of circumstances. Like there's nothing we can do to change that. All we can do is try to learn and like grow. So, but I mean, again, as a filmmaker, when you decide to tell certain stories, I think maybe as you understand and learn more, you just open it up more. Like, I would have loved to have a movie like this, but with some people of color. Like, not yeah. not everybody had to be black, but have a couple of black people in that. That would have been interesting because I feel like I would have maybe related to it a little bit more. I mean, I don't think the race thing was actually what was giving me the distance. It was more just how the story was told that I couldn't really was, like, oh, yeah. grapple yeah. on. But... I think black women being feminine or like their internal lives really mattering isn't something that you see often. Um, we're seeing it more in television. Like you have insecure and things of that nature, but in film, you don't actually get to see it that much. So I think it yeah. would have been great for, or for any other young filmmakers who are coming up to make stories or to create stories like that. Cause I think that that's totally necessary. Like, I think that the uh, white, fragile damsel is a story that has already been told so many times that like we don't have to keep telling variations of that very at that same thing. Like we can move on and or do different things or look at it through different races and different lens. I think that that is still important because this film is interesting because it's about young women like in their internal lives, and I feel like that is applicable to everyone so everyone should be included in that uh-huh. and yeah i yeah <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah i get it i understand i feel the same way like and this 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 movie is really onion as far as you know onion layers like as far as you know mm-hmm. the lack of diversity i guess in the neighborhood and the pictures of the characters you know the predatory behavior of the boys mm-hmm. you know the lack of laziness of the and, and that's the i think the also thing is how the parents are depicted mm. um the father was basically not non-involved he's like i just want to fuck with these model airplanes and that's really it or teach math and where the mother is clearly the authoritarian and she has power in the household he kind of I'm not saying it's a bad thing or a good thing but i do think marriage relationships you do what works for works and you works for you but at a certain point when you see your kids are being affected you kind of should like be reflective like when their youngest daughter can try to kill herself the first time the mother's standard was like oh i'm gonna restrict you even more mm. now you know mm. and that kind of thing um yeah and and, and and i think those that's the thing the, i think the worst people in this movie are kind of the adults <laughs> and also Josh Hartnett is kind of an asshole. Uh, but you have you have the girls' parents, you know, and then you also have the 
the rest of the parents seeing adults in the neighborhood. Right. Very, very whispery. And, it, and that's the thing. I never understood how much adults like whisper and talk until I once again, like your church viewpoint. I only found out how much adults listen and talks until I became a member of uh, my, my church's board at like a younger age. Oh. And so then I became aware of like, oh, y'all just be talking shit about people all the time. <laughs> you know, you know, but yeah. um, but people, I didn't like the neighborhood, like gossiping, stuff like that. You had that one reporter just looking for her story, like camped out in front of their house. Like she just pulled up when they were outside trying to stop the tree from getting bulldozed. Like, oh, they're in their 90s. Let's go. Shit like that. And, you know, the fact that a year after all the girls had like died and the family moved, the parents in their neighborhood threw a birthday party for one of the girls with a theme being what? Asphyxiation. Yeah. You know, suicide by asphyxiation was that was one of the team and the dad was in a gas mask and the, one of the asshole parents is like, oh, I'm a teenager. I have nothing but problems and parents commit suicide. And they're making these jokes amongst their kids, you know, and for mm-hmm. me, that's I wish this story had expanded upon, you know, and the, the, the part of one of the things in the, the, the movie does mention is this is happening at a time where a lot of young people are committing suicide. Mm-hmm. And a parents in the country and the world does not know why young people are sad. And you have five girls in one family like kill themselves. Mm-hmm. And then a year later, you're throwing a party making fun of the girls who kill themselves around your kids. Like how do your kids now feel is like, oh, I can't tell you anything because these strangers, they took their lives because their parents couldn't relate to them. Now, how am I going to come to you when you're taking that loss of life as a joke? You know, so. Yeah, that's what happens when you have too much money. You just get bored and you just do really out of pocket things because you have nothing else going on. That's why all the parents were just like outside, like gossiping about these people because they have nothing to do. Like (laughs) they're just like in their homes bored and repressed like nothing else is going on so something like this is like the biggest thing that's probably ever happened to them in years where like in their community young women are dying and they're like oh fascinating this is the tea let's all sit around and talk like if you've ever like after church you go to somebody's house for like a for lunch or for like a little potluck and just like all the hens <laughs> plucking <laughs> away. It's just ridiculous. But um, yeah, it's I one movie that I really think does this well. But since it's a comedy, maybe it might be like received a little bit better. Is Heather's because Heather's like makes fun of the teen suicide thing in a really like dark, yeah. twisted way, but also really funny. Um, and like you know the absentee parents who just care about appearances but don't actually care about how their kids are doing at all it's very but this is more this is a very serious look at it and I think that like this story has so much to say about not only like kids but like what you could turn into you know because the 70s was like a relatively um liberated time for most people like maybe not in the suburbs definitely not in the suburbs but definitely like in the cities like it was a it was lively 
And then in the 80s, you had Reagan and all that. And the, and the conservatism of the country kind of fell back into line. So everyone was more, uh, what's the word, waspy. Um, and everyone wanted to, you know, feel like old money and rich and stuff like that. So it's an interesting thing to see what that looks like and like how severe people can be and how like controlled people can be and how that can drive people to death. Because... Yeah. And I like the line at the beginning of the story where the voiceover, the man who's doing the voiceover is saying like, oh, we got an insight of what it was like to be a girl, you know, their dreams and how they just automatically knew like what colors go together and stuff. And I thought that that was cool. Like there's a there's an interesting angle of like the boys maybe trying to understand these women. But then because of society and culture and just like how men were treated Whereas like you can kind of just do whatever you want and that's fine. Um, they had, there was a, you know, sexualization that just automatically came with it. Like we could be interested in who they are, but also we want to touch them. Like, <laughs> so it was complicated, but I liked that. I actually liked that it wasn't so black and white. And like, you were left kind of feeling like, really mixed about it. Like, how do I feel about these boys? How do I feel about the girls? Like, it's just, it was interesting. It was a really interesting film. And I think it was shot really well. I thought the music was great. Um, and the performances were really good too. Like the woman who plays the mom, Kathleen Turner, Mm -hmm. as much as I didn't like her, I think she did a great job. (laughs) as a super Christian conservative, like very strict parent, but I also liked Kirsten Dunst. I didn't like her character of luck so much. Just cause I was like, I don't know. I guess I just didn't feel anything for her. Like, <laughs> but I did like how she played the character. I thought it was very interesting. Hated Josh Hartnett. Is that his name? Hartnett? Yeah. Hated his character. Yeah. I knew that he was going to mess around on her. Like I, and I was just like, okay, well, I'm glad that she got over him though. But <laughs> I was like, please don't. And what's crazy is that the dad really was like, not about to let them hang out. But just because he was on the football team, he was like, oh, okay, I guess, I guess you're okay. Yeah. Cause I was also in the football team. It's like, that doesn't, <laughs> that, that doesn't mean anything like trash is trash, but whatever. <laughs> Yeah, I I really do wish, and I think I was reading about um more about this movie. They had said this is one of the few cases where the movie supersedes um the book mm. in a lot of ways because, like I said, it goes. This is a largely feminine experience of adolescence and stuff like that, and those those ideals. And the book was written by a man, which it does make sense because the story is from the boy's perspective, mm. but because the the emotional linchpin and a majority of the content is you know, dealing with the girls, it does make sense that Sophia was able to kind of, I guess, also to a degree draw from her experiences. I don't think, you know, like you mentioned before, that Hollywood lineage that family has, I probably Sophia wasn't allowed to be as free as she wanted to be in her youth. Knowing who her her family was is kind of like a way when Drew Barrymore talks about her Hollywood upbringing because she also has one of those families. Um... But yeah, Josh Hartnett, asshole character. Um, yeah. 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 But a really good movie. 
Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, moving on from uh that, it's a box office time, and I don't know. Did I was like I was really interested. You know, Sunday, Saturday before I had a busy Saturday. You know, and then I also went to the game with my sisters. But I was like, the thing I was looking forward to the most was spending my Sunday and just going to the movie theater. And I was so desperate to go to try and watch Blue Beetle because mm-hmm. during the following week before, um, Warner Bros. was like, yeah, this movie is going to be on digital by September 19th. And everybody's like, the movie like, just came out two weeks ago. So I was like, you know what? Screw it. I want to watch Blue Beetle in theaters. Every single viewing of that movie, the whole day, even to like the 11 o'clock screening, all sold out. Every movie theater I went to, went like so. And I, and I think that's the overall thing when we're determining, like we mentioned before, give the movies a chance. Last week, I do think part of the overall issue as far as movies not being as successful as they once were is ticket prices are just too high. Too, mm-hmm. too high. Because <laughs> um, mm-hmm. if I look at it, like it's um about um 8.5 million people. Went to the movies uh, this past um, National Cinema Day, the Sunday. Um, yeah, and it's and basically, it's, uh, of course, they had a new debut. Uh, Gran Turismo was is actual official opening week. You know, Barbie went is now Warner Brothers' highest grossing picture of all time. You know, with a record breaking. Um, and they're saying majority of movie movie viewers were between the ages of eighteen and twenty five and um twenty five and twenty four. Basically, the that millennial and uh, millennial and Gen Gen Z um, bracket made up the largest uh, viewers. Um, I'm not surprised on that. Like due to that, like the top ten for the weekend shuffle, like Grand Hill, of course, number one. Barbie was able to maintain. Number two, Blue Beetle did flip because you know Grand Turismo debuted Oppenheimer and Teenage Mutant Turtles, the Max Drays. You have Retribution and Hill. You know two other debut movies that talk to me. Like every movie, no matter what, was completely sold sold out. And I, and I also think the the fact that especially in Blue Beetle's case was the more people heard about the movie from via mm-hmm. online or everybody assumed it was going to be bad, but you look at the Rotten Tomato scores from audience and critics, so everybody's actually enjoying the movie. You know, Disney is not Disney, but Warner Brothers rushed to put it on, you know, digital so quickly comes from the fact that because they tried to hustle the industry and just get a rush negotiation for Barbie and Oppenheimer, Blue Beetle was suffering because it had it didn't get any marketing coverage at all. Like if if these studios were smart in that time, where you instead of focusing only on Blue uh, Oppenheimer and Barbie, you you focus on your whole slate for the next uh, two months. You know the next month because a lot of movies came out in the same time span as Barbie and Oppenheimer, but the studios like um only focus on those two, which is to their detriment. But, you know, it is what it is. These guys are stupid. So. <laughs> yeah. But is that, that's amazing that 8.5 million people bought movie tickets for National Cinema Day because I was one of those people. Oh, I was one of those 8.5. I hate you. I, hate I did you. not go to see Blue Beetle or any of those bigger films because I just didn't mm. care to watch it. Um, mm-hmm. 
I watched something else that I'll talk about later during our reviews. But um, <laughs> yeah, I think that's amazing because my theaters, even for a movie like that, that I went to go see, there were people in that theater and the theater was so packed. Not, not, not my specific theater, but like the entire movie theater. There were so yeah. many people out that day. So I think that that, like you said, is a huge piece of the pie of like why people aren't going to see movies that much is because the prices are really high. Like if you want to go see a movie and also just get like some popcorn and a drink, that's costing you over $20. Like for one movie. And then you have a bunch of these big movies that are coming out in succession from me. Like you had what mission impossible Barbie, I Oppenheimer, blue beetle, grand tourism, like all of these huge movies that people are supposed to go see, but then you're charging them all this money. Like obviously people are going to be more selective in like what they actually go to the movies to see. So, you know what I mean? It's like, you had a blessing with Barbie and Oppenheimer, but that's like a once in a life. Like that, yeah. that doesn't happen often. So. And, and, and yeah, they're now predicting Oppenheimer is going to probably hit the some probably next week, probably hit the $1 billion mark as well. But yeah, it's, if you go to movie theater is like for one person, it's like between 15 and $20. And when you throw mm-hmm. food on there, that's like another 10. You're already spending almost $30, $40 for one person. That's right. why when people people say, yo, Dale, let's hit the movies. I'm going to the theater in the cater because that hole is like $7 for me for an adult. You know, the movie, the actual AMC closest to me is like $17. And people mm-hmm. think it's weird that I'm going to drive to extra 15 minutes. Like, yes, I will. I will, because <laughs> guess what? It, it takes me $30 to fill up, fill up a gas tank. Me driving 20 minutes is not going to affect my gas tank as much. And I'm, I can see the movie and get my popcorn for 10, for like $10 instead of paying $30 for myself for one thing. Yeah. Move, like the ticket prices need to like drastically like decrease. Right. So. right. so true. Anyways, uh, moving on to our next story. Walt Disney Pictures VFX workers have moved to unionize. The visual effects crews at Walt Disney Studios have taken a significant step to to unionize after filing with the National Labor Relations Board for an election to unionize. A supermajority over 80% of the 18 in-house VFX crew members at Walt Disney Pictures signed authorization cards signaling their desire to unionize. The historical move is the second time in history that VFX professionals have joined together to demand the same protections and rights as their colleagues. Earlier this month, VFX crews at Marvel Studios voted to unionize beginning August 21st. Battles are due on September 11th, and the vote count will take place on September the 12th. So I think I put out a video a few weeks ago about Hot Strike Summer, and that wasn't strictly pertaining to the actors and writer strikes. Like, they are so many industries that are voting to unionize and union power is like the highest it's ever been since oh i don't know like the 60s 70s 80s like it's been a really long time since we've seen this type of union action and it actually making a difference like i think it's amazing that people are saying no like we're doing a lot of work we're doing more work than we've ever done before and we need compensation and we need better working conditions. And I'm really happy that they're fighting for it. And these companies are just going to have to recognize that like you're making a lot of money up top. You know, our executives, our CEOs are making the bulk of the money, but the people who are actually doing the day-to-day work 
are struggling, you have to compensate for that. Like you can't just expect them to continue to do work under crazy demands and not get paid sufficiently. So. Yeah. And like, not even just like you said, it's like almost a global strike. I know we did, we kind of under talk, spoke about it before, but even I think, you know, we are, we're, we're stepping more as Hollywood has evolved. We're stepping more into Korean and, uh, the Asian cinema market mm. actors over there also starting to strike over there with their unions saying we want better wages stuff like that I think the next biggest strike that's happening here in the states is going to be the auto workers union right. you know they were like yeah we haven't seen like we nobody's seen like um well they said uh promotions in like the past four years so yeah it's 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 been due for like this is like a mass uh global strike is happening and that's because also the powers that be that a lot of run these companies and also run these countries have really took away a lot of workers rights you know Mm -hmm. like the whole reaganomics thing trickle down you don't need a union it's gonna fall to you and it has not happened i'm i'm happy that after like almost 40 years everybody's like no shouldn't happen we go on strike and get our shit so yeah i'm all i'm all for it um in, in addition to, of course, the VFX workers all striking, um, there is an update. Um, of course, if you're a fan of the industry or you're an actor entering the industry, you're aware of um, central casting. Central casting is probably one of the main places a lot of um, people who are starting acting or interested or people who are doing background work, one of their main sources of getting jobs. Um, and so over... Uh, central casting has now updated their website when you log in and register and stuff they have a clause and it doesn't allow um, background actors to sign in without allowing their likenesses to be used in the future um, and it's also what everybody is what SAG is trying, what everybody is saying that studios are planning to limit usage of background actors entirely by only law likenesses of actors so they can generate them through AI um and it goes further. Um, the person noticed it. Uh, they said Sakafra also said this is not a this clause. This adjustment to central casting is a Sakafra approved document. And if you're an actor or a talent who's looking for work, um, they're being told to um, don't log in if you can't log into your account. They're being told to um, call central casting directly. Let them know you want to log in without. Accept that we don't accept the waiver, and you still want to log in. And if and if things don't progress beyond that, they're supposed to document the person you spoke to, and then contact your union representative. Um, but yeah, like we said before, this is one of the ways the studio is trying to circumvent um everything going on with the uh, with the strikes. So yeah. yeah, and let's continue to talk about that because there was a recent kind of update of what was happening with the Writers Guild and the producers where basically negotiations broke down again because there was a deal that that was was made that the WGA said almost reached what they needed, but not quite. Like it wasn't exactly everything they were trying to get. And apparently the producers broke the media blackout agreement that they had and spoke to the press because they thought that people they wanted people to know that they were actually trying and um, it didn't work. That completely backfired and people were very angry about that. And so now there are no talks happening between them and 
anymore. We don't know when that's going to resume. And there's also no talks between the actors and the producers. And movies are getting shifted around yet again. Dune is moving to next year. So that movie's not even coming out this year. And a creator who, if you know the um, YouTube channel Screen Junkies, makes honest trailers, one of the guys who used to work on that or still works on it, Dan Mural, he has been like updating and doing videos on the strikes and what's been going on with that. And he made such a good point that I feel like very strongly, which is, listen, WGA and the producers stop putting out statements and talking about and pointing fingers and grandstanding. You need to sit down and you need to talk and you need to figure this out. Like the adults make it work. That's how I feel now. Like, and I'm not even, I'm not even on the picket lines. Like this isn't even directly affecting my life. So you can imagine the people who are desperately struggling at this point. Like in the beginning, it was very much like people were donating and things were moving. Like, you know, there was some coverage for people who weren't working. Now, the way that this, these strikes have been dragging on for months, like it's not, it's, it's getting worse. Like people are really having a hard time. And I feel like there needs to be so, and he said this too. He was like, there needs to be someone to make these people talk. Like you can't just be like, oh, well, I don't want to talk to you anymore because you hurt my pride or you spoke to the press. Like that doesn't matter. Like you guys need to figure it out like now, because what he was saying was that there are a lot of actors who, even if the strike were to end like this week, their entire calendar for the rest of this year is shot. Like there's not that much that they can do anymore and so it's like listen like y'all can't just decide not to talk anymore like you need to sit down and talk like you actually have to do it (laughs) like I don't you know what I mean it's so it's frustrating for me and I and again it's not even affecting my life so I can only imagine I, I see his point entirely. I'm not not putting a lot of the blame on the writers and on the actors' guilds. I can put you can kind of put majority of blame on the producers' guild because if you've if you've been paying attention to what these their groups part of the demands are AI. We want residuals, diverse writing rooms. We want a, actors. We don't want any AI. We want to be proper residuals at least for background performers and everybody get paid. Simple. And all they're really asking for as well into that is all they really want is basically one percent of the profits to go all these unions combined mm-hmm. are just asking for just one percent of the profits. And that's it. Like mm-hmm. and they just want transparency. Like, yeah, you're going to streaming. We want to know how much these shows actually made. We want you to like Disney has announced like they've done like four or five shows. Mm. or movies for streaming only that are like yeah no we're not gonna do it we're gonna use a tax write-off like no people now you have writers and actors here depending on those visuals you know who aren't gonna get that at least if you want to take make it as a tax write-off because you want to own the ip for as long as you want until it expires like 10 years that's fine but at least if you're given the one percent of all these profits from like barbie and Oppenheimer, all the studios they wouldn't really be having to act or residuals because guess what? These people, all these people on the bottom of the rung, could still get their health care and all that stuff ma- maintained. Mm. Um, it's even to the point where even um, I asked the International Alliance of Theater and Stage Employees. Um, they're like they had a bomb threat at their local eighty in California. 
like because as people are like putting the blame on they just I'm finding a Hollywood union and I'm putting I'm blaming the strike on you guys no matter what. So yeah, uh it's but at, at the end of the day, that's the purpose of a strike. A strike is supposed to be disruptive. So Yeah, I just feel is, like so. Yeah, and I don't think I'm not putting the blame on like <laughs> the people who are in the unions yeah. at all. I the the companies all together can legitimately cover everything that they're asking for, like yeah. and they would still be profitable. So there's no there's no excuse of why they're not doing it other than that they just don't want to make the changes, the producers. My thing is like we're not gonna talk anymore. That's my issue. My issue is like, well I mean we're not gonna ne- keep negotiating. And my thing and is I like, also don't well, blame them on that s- though. What are you saying? So, I don't blame them on that. They're not negotiating or going to the press. Like, honestly, most of the information we find out from the writers and actors strikes have been coming from their websites. A lot of the information yeah. on the studio mm-hmm. side, like a lot of these studios, like a variety is owned by like MC, um, NBC Universal. Like a lot of these major Hollywood publications are backed by these studios. So even when they report to the studios, there is going to be an editorial bias. You know, not to be you know fully one hundred about it. So, and I think the, the the studios have used their used the media a lot more than the writers and actors because the writers and actors don't really have access to it in the same way the well, studios do. True, but they do have social media, which is actually yeah. more direct to people. And yeah. there was a vote that said that most people backed the strikes. Like there, there was a news story that came out I think last week about that. That I think it was yeah. like ninety or something amount of people completely agree with what the unions are doing so it's not even like we all know that the producers are the bad guys like we're not under any delusion that the, that's not true like we all all aware but yeah. i feel like the fact that it, i feel like if you're not gonna what's the point of the negotiations if you're not going to negotiate you know what i'm saying it's like what was it and it's like okay you can strike symbolically but mm. when are you going to get what you need to get? Like you need to, you're trying to get something out of this. Right. And also there are thousands of people who are out of work. Like, come on. Like you can't, to me, that's a little bit, I don't want to say, I'm not going to say the word, but I'm just saying. So, like, so, the funny thing is though, that that meeting only happened. Like that meeting got fast track. Cause the, remember how last week we spoke about how uh, circuit courts have said, uh, right. AI can't be copyrighted. That meeting only happened because they were like, oh shit, we want to use AI, but we can't. So the, the main point of that, the meeting that they disclosed was the fact that um, uh, they wanted the writers, at least one writer, to be able to rewrite what the AI did so yeah. they can then copyright it. That was really the only reason why the producers met with the writers is so they can still get their AI shit, but somehow circumvent it by having the writers agree to like at least one writer or two writers rewrite the AI shit so they can still copyright it. Ignoring that that's literally what they're striking for. Like, mm. is so dumb. Like, I don't know how they assume that that meeting was going to go well. Like, yeah, we want AI to write it, but you just do two words and you'll get credited. Like... People yeah. money are stupid. <laughs> yeah, they are. I'm just like, y'all need to figure this out. Like everyone, <laughs> everyone needs to figure it out. Like I can't, it's just because the way that this is going is that like, it's going to take another couple of weeks for them to re to like get back talking. They haven't even dealt with the actors yet. You know what I'm saying? And that's like another month. 
And it's like, I don't know. Doing this pushback. What do you say? I said doing this pushback. And like, the Dude. one of the movies, like, I don't, they haven't pushed back uh, Aquaman. Aquaman comes out in November, in December. Same thing with Blue Beetle. There's zero promotion for it. And like, Aquaman has been actually one of DC's few good superhero movies. Mm-hmm. Like, and zero promotion for it so yeah it's like you guys this isn't the stakes are too high there's too much at risk like you can't you can't not i guess that's my issue my issue is just like well i don't want to talk to you and it's like well you can't can't say that right now like it's too it's we're we're too deep in this hole for us to not be communicating and the guy was saying like even if they're just like shouting at each other for 12 hours a day like at least something's happening and i'm like I agree with that. <laughs> so anyways, moving on to the next story um, about the idol being canceled, which are anyone surprised? Are we surprised? No. <laughs> yeah. So they're not bringing it back because I guess the viewership was low. And Surprising. it was so- <laughs> mm. <laughs> And it was so it was so widely panned like it's rare when you have critics and audiences agreeing on something and they were all like nah it's trash so um yeah they said everyone's intention was to have a second season but there was no update when the show wrapped so HBO has fully said that after much thought and consideration HBO, as well as the creators and producers, have decided not to move forward with the second season. And we're grateful to the creators, cast, and the crew for their incredible work. And honestly, I feel like this is exactly what Sam Levinson and The Weeknd get, like, for being so unhinged. Is that the right word? Unhinged about this entire show. Stupid. That could have actually been good if they weren't so obsessed with themselves. I guess that's that was the real crime for me. <laughs> Yeah, it's I mean, like look, this it's it. The show was originally put what ten, a ten episode mini series. Like episodes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and then it got reduced to six, and then it was so panned to the point where they said, "Yeah, that six episode is not happening, so we're just going to do f- like five. Like, so it makes it it makes zero sense. And then I think the other day, um what was it sam decided to talk about euphoria season three or whatever and he said something to the point of oh in the upcoming season he wants to explore um rue and like something about humanity and villainy and stuff like that and everybody was like but rue's the villain of the show like what do you like not the villain of the show not the villain but you know what but you know what i'm saying it doesn't the show doesn't showcase rue in like a very positive a positive light. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't know what that man is on. I don't <laughs> want to say he's taking drugs, but is he taking drugs again? But is he taking Somebody drugs? Somebody need to find out. That is yeah. the point. No, so. let me know exactly on that. Anyway, um, yeah. So let's talk about what we watched over the week. Um, so what I watched, I watched one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, really, Scott. Holy Scott is just that fat dude as director. Yeah. Um, I watched uh, Kingdom in Heaven. Um, the movie came out in 2005. Um, I rewatched it, one of my favorite movies. I watched the director's cut. 
Dragon's Cut is three hours long, um, but the difference from the original theatrical release or the regular cut is that the, the, it being three hours adds so much more to the story, and everything kind of does make sense, even though it's a much longer. And it's it's one of those first movies where the director's cut was needed because the theatrical version was so bad that he was like, yeah, I'm doing director's cut, and the director's cut is, is like one of the most beloved movies everywhere. Like, this is like peak Orlando boom, like before like Pirates and before uh, Lord of the Rings, where he's he's got his like goatee and his long hair, and he's he's wooing the wooing all the women's and stuff. Like Orlando Bloom should have had a longer run as you know that Hollywood you know sex symbol it, it boy. Like for some odd reason, Brad Pitt is like almost fifty and he's still on that run. I don't know how that's possible. Yeah. white people. Um. Yeah, Liam Neeson like that is like like this is like the precipice of Liam Neeson playing like mentor figures instead of like him being an aging assassin. You know, Liam Neeson isn't there for like three minutes and then he dies. You know, but so visual, fucking visual masterpiece. And when you look at it like this, like a lot of those buildings and stuff don't exist in like Jerusalem now, like that. You know, um. The medieval times, the, the visual, like the look of it from like, I don't know how the hell I, I could look at a Marvel movie and be like, oh, that's shitty CGI. And I could look at a movie from like 2005, like all these movies from 2005 that have CGI as far as their buildings and like escapes, and I can't notice it. Like, I know it's CGI, but visually, I can't tell. Like, how have we regressed this, like to that point? But uh, movie's just so so beautiful. Um, it's not gonna be historically accurate to the Crusades, but fuck it, who cares? It's still a still a good movie, you know. You you join Orlando's Orlando Bloom on a hero's journey, and you get a a good end, and you get a full circle moment and a wonderful ending. So yeah, good. I about this movie a lot actually. Yeah, can you Hmm. I'll give you the director's cut. Three hours. No, <laughs> I don't want that. <laughs> so see that complaint. That funny thing is when they when they play the director's cut in the theater, they even had like intermission sections in it so people could go. Oh well, then yeah, that's nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah, intermission. Um. <laughs> okay, so for National Cinema Day, I went to the movies, had a nice little day out, um, and I watched a uh first look of the mil- of the movie Golda and mm-hmm. it stars Helen Mirren as um, the first female Israeli prime minister Golda Meir um, I watched a documentary about this person because I had no idea who this person was so I watched it, a documentary about Golda before I went to go see the movie just so I can like have some foundation of like who this person was and like what they were and what they did and what they accomplished and then I saw the film the film was fine. Um, mm. Biopics are always kind of hit or miss. Like you're either gonna, it's either gonna be really good or it's gonna be super mid. And I think this this was like in between, somewhere in between, somewhere somewhere north of mid, but not great. So it was mm-hmm. somewhere in that. But I will say Helen Mirren talented beyond belief like she's still so like 
The amount of Helen Mirren movies I've watched in my lifetime and like every single film that she's done, whether the film was good or not, she was always amazing. So she was great in this. It focuses on her, on the character during like a time of war. I think it was the, um, was it the Yom Yom Kippur wars in Israel in like the seventies or something of that sort. Um, And it's when Egypt kind Egypt and who else was it? The Arab, yeah, yeah, they were attacking Jerusalem. So like, that was a whole that was a whole thing, and so it chronicles that entire wartime issue. And yeah, the Mm -hmm. movie was okay. I do think it did a really good job at depicting like what being in power really looks like because when you're like the head of state, she has a great line in it where she says like. Uh, she said something to the effect of like all political success ends in failure. Like you're never going to be at the top and like leave office on a good note. And I think that that's pretty much true for every single person. Like who's ever been in one of those top positions. Like at some point, everyone's going to hate your guts and wants you out of office. Like, and a couple of years ago, they probably thought you were amazing and that you were going to change everything. And then once you leave, they're like, yeah, approval ratings abysmal so that was really interesting to see that to see her to see what like anxiety looks like when you're in one of those situations and all of your decisions have catastrophic effects because you're the one who's calling the shots and hundreds of thousands of people are dying on your watch like I would never want that job never in a million years would I ever want to be any type of president prime minister King, queen, I never, I would never, ever want that because the amount of death that you have on your head once you leave, like, it's just so insane. And I think it did a really good job of depicting, like, how that, how being in that position and making those choices really eats you up. And it was also affecting her health. Like, she was a chain smoker. And even when the doctors were like, yo, you have cancer, like, you were, you're not doing all, she was still smoking her cigs, like... She refused to give that up. So it was a really interesting look at that. I thought it did a good job at depicting what being in one of those positions were like. It's weird to look at it now because there is a lot of issues between uh, Israel and Palestine. And there's that stuff that predated that moment that is shown in the film, but that Mm -hmm. has continued and gotten worse. Like even right now, there are still horrific acts being played out over there um, between Israel and Palestine and like it's really tough that like these things have started decades ago and yet people are still fighting over things that have happened (laughs) generations ago it's just really sad like it's 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 very terrible and also just like the politics and stuff which I found very interesting um, between her and the United States and the close relationship that they had and yeah that was it was nice to watch a movie that I don't think I'm not sure if it's out yet. I don't know if it's out yet, but it might have suffered press because, you know, strikes. But um, it was interesting to see it. I Again, Ella Marin did a great job, and I think she's probably going to get nominated for this. <laughs> I'm sure like I'm sure she's going to get some type of recognition for the work because she did a great job on this. And yeah. I also started Friday Night Lights. The Yay. thing I thought I was about to start last week. Um, 
I watched the first episode. I didn't realize that these episodes were so long. So I really had to invest time in it. But um, yeah, it was giving post 9-11, like it was giving poverty a little bit. But like, <laughs> when I tell you that the football scenes, like the actual scenes of them playing were so engrossing and compelling. I was hooked and I couldn't care less about football. Like that's one of the sports that I just don't have time for. I don't care. Even when I watch the Super Bowl, I'm not watching. I'm just there for the halftime show. And then I completely clock off. Like I don't care about football at all. And I was so invested in that football game and in those characters. I was like, how am I so moved? And I think it's like down to like editing and music. Like the way that they are able to like keep you engaged during these football games or these football scenes was so good. Like so much was going on. I wasn't that invested in like it, to be honest, like throughout most of the scene. So like that football sequence takes place at like the last, in the, in the pilot, it takes place at like the last kind of, I don't know, 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And the, everything that happened before was a little cringy. I was like, what? And then I was like, Jesse Plemons and Mickey Kelly are in the show. What? But then when it got to the football scene, I was like, I am a Panther girl. Like, I am here for the team. I was so excited. I was so moved by what was going on. Oh, it was so good. Saracen, like, I'm on his team. I, I want him to succeed in life. I don't know what's gonna happen with that character <laughs> the only reason i really like am onto the show is because i watch parks and rec and in parks and rec leslie talks about how much she loves Friday night lights <laughs> and so like after i watched that show i was like oh, i should check it out but yeah it, it's it seems like there's gonna be a lot of drama but those football sequences were so engrossing so i will continue to watch because now i'm, I'm invested now <laughs> i know what happens so it's what it's it's the football adjacent stuff you're interested in (laughs) i won't watch the games no 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 if they were edited the way that they edited that game and that show i would absolutely watch it but (laughs) because it was so good like the quick shot the intensity i was like oh my god they're gonna lose like and i was like wait why do i care about this look sports and like Sports and like TV and move and film look a lot more intense and interesting than it does in real life for some odd reason. But the thing is, is I love watching basketball. So I don't know why no other sport really grips me the way that basketball does. Cause I can watch a game and be fully entertained and satisfied. Like I'm totally fine with that. But football, baseball, tennis, all, no, don't have the time for it, don't care. Just tell me who wins. Like I- Oh wow. But this show, I'm locked in. Like, I am locked in. I am here. Clear eyes, full hearts. Can't lose. Can't so. lose. Can't, and then they screamed it at the end. Oh, my God. I was so excited. I was like, <laughs> they said the thing. They said the thing. They <laughs> said the thing. Uh, okay. Uh, anyways, I'm hot now. So let's let's end this episode. Um, <laughs> Yes. We hope that you're taking care of yourselves and you're doing well. Make sure to check out all of our social media, support us if you can, and we will see you guys in the next episode. Goodbye. Au revoir.